I've got the privilege of bringing to you God's Word today, talking about the ideas of comebacks. I'm going to be in the story of Joseph. And if you are familiar with the literature of humanity, of the stories that everybody who reads should have read once in their life, and will define what life is like for many of us, Joseph is one of those stories. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, secular, if you're a teacher of literature, you go to it. And as I walk you through today, I'm going to try to give kind of a summary of the story, talk about some of the individuals. I'm not going to actually open the text until we get to Genesis 50, to the very closing of it. I'm guessing that everybody in this room, when you hear this story, it's going to trigger some emotions. It's going to trigger some memories. Some things that just, sometimes you want to scream for joy and sometimes you want to wail in pain. My, uh, Michael mentioned I grew up in Minnesota. I had an uncle that was a cattle buyer. My dad worked in the road construction industry. Occasionally I would follow my uncle or my dad into North and South Dakota as a kid. I always loved it. 31 years ago, I did something, and my wife and son Timothy, you know, I, I'm old enough that sometimes now my emotions start to get the best of me, and I blurt things out. You know, I'm hitting that stage of life. It's embarrassing, I know, to have the grandfather-like figure who just blurts stuff out, and you hope it's kind and wise, but sometimes it's not. A couple times I've been driving around and I see something that triggers a really deep emotion in me. And Timothy and Janet have a couple of times heard me blurt out, I was really bored there. And they've also heard me say, this is where it got fixed. I have the happiest memories on this exit of any exit I've ever driven on. And let me tell you a story. 31 years ago, I was 21 years old, I was a junior in college, I had come home for spring break, my dad was selling equipment at that time, and he had sold a bucket uh, to an excavator, to a backhoe, to some guys in Williston. And he asked me, he said, David, I need to get that bucket to Williston. And he gave me enough money to buy fuel, to buy food, and a hotel, and he says, I need you to get it there by tonight, and in the morning I have to have you deliver that bucket. I started driving in Minneapolis, loving the weather, thinking, hey, I'm going to get $100, my dad's happy with me, but frankly, my dad can be a scary figure sometimes. And I got to Fargo, and it started snowing, and it was those wet March snows that gets really sticky and slick, and I got to Jamestown, and my mom was kind of whispering in my ear, get a hotel. And I could hear my dad saying, dumb kid, when I called him and told him, hey, I'm in Jamestown, I'm getting snowed in, so I'm going to keep going. And I ran off the ditch, because I was trying to go fast. And somehow, by God's grace, I didn't go into a ditch that was full of water, and I was able to get myself out of the ditch, and I started driving. <laughs> And then the, the pickup started overheating. 
And I got out and I looked and it wasn't leaking any fluid and the fan belts were working and I had no idea what was wrong. And I remember being so scared that I'm going to break down somewhere between Jamestown and Bismarck and I don't know, sold out here. And it's snowing. And I remember my dad telling me stories about people that freeze to death when they break down. And I got to an exit. And I had a gut level feeling, if I get off, maybe I'm going to find out. I got off, drove a couple blocks south of the interstate, and there was, in the snowstorm, a gentleman who was working in a garage, and I pulled in, and I said, and I think he could tell I was a scared 21-year-old kid from Minnesota. And I said, the truck's overheating, I don't know what to do. And he looked, and he said, well, he didn't say dumb kid, he actually was kind to me. He said, you get all this snow on the grill, and you're not getting the air through the radiator, and if you just knock the snow off, it's going to go back to a normal temp. I was 21. I didn't know that. My dad had told me a lot of things. He hadn't told me that. I knocked the snow off. I started driving, and I remember that how happy I was when I got to the exit of 94 and started driving the list. And this week, Monday as I was driving in, I got off on steel, got fuel, and as I'm getting in, I'm going, this is the exit! This is where this guy knocked me out! And you know, as we get into the story of Joseph, I'm guessing that everybody here is going to have stories like this. This is a story that speaks to our deepest wounds, it talks about our dreams, and the gentleman that we're going to talk about, uh, Joseph and Jacob, in Judah, in Reuben, the term that theologians use as patriarchs, they're the heroes of our faith. But when we look at these heroes and their ideal life, it's really messy. And when we think about our life, we could say many of us, oh, I grew up in good families, and we could talk about good things our parents did, but yet they left us with wounds. And our siblings did. And then we think about ourselves, and we've done it to ourselves. This text speaks to mystery. Did God really say something? Did I really have a dream that was from him? And the biggest thing that we'll get to in Genesis 50 is I think this text answers the search for me. Because our human nature, God's made us, created in his image, we're resilient. We can get through almost anything because God's created us. But if you want to break the human spirit, ask for the human spirit to suffer without purpose and without meaning. That will break about anyone. And this is one that says there's purpose to it. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm not going to read 13 chapters and go verse by verse. <laughs> you guys got little kids. I want you to have lunch with them, and I want you little kids to hear this message. This is a good one. I'm just going to give you a summary. But if this touches you, sometimes we go home and take the time to sit and read these 13 yeah. chapters. The story starts, there's a man named Jacob, he has 12 sons, he has two wives, two concubines, and one daughter, and it's a mess. It's full of jealousy and division, and he has two of his youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin, that are his favorites, and if you have 12 sons, you're going to choose a favorite, you just can't call them all the same. <laughs> Joseph has two dreams. And in the first dream, his sheaves stand up, and his brothers do, and then his brother's sheaves bow down to him. 
And his ten brothers hate him because they know that the father loves him more than the others. And now he starts telling him, let me tell you what God told me. And they hate him even more. Then Joseph has a dream about the sun and moon and stars bowing down to him. Me, my father and my mother are going to bow down to me too. And his father, Jacob, rebukes him. Now, even though Jacob rebukes him, he stops and ponders because Jacob has met this God, this Yahweh God, and he's had dreams before, and Jacob's done a lot of awful things, and he's at the stage in life where he's not so sure of his judgment anymore. He ponders it. Jacob or Israel, ten sons are out herding, and he's kind of lost track of them, so he sends his son Joseph to go check on them. And as Joseph is coming near his brothers, they see him in the distance, and all of their hatred boils up. And they start plotting to kill him. Boy, I'm thinking about this. I have two brothers and a sister, and honestly, there's been a few times where I could have been about that angry. But I think they feel that way about me sometimes. Reuben, the oldest, has betrayed his father once in an awful way. And he knows that he wants to get the birthright. But he's betrayed his father. He's rebelled against his father. He's pretty confident his father holds a grudge. And Reuben thinks, well, I'm going to persuade my brothers for a moment not to kill him and to throw him into a pit. And then I'm going to come back and release him. So they throw Joseph into a pit. And while they're sitting there, what do we do? And Reuben's gone somewhere else. These Ishmaelite traders come. And the brothers go, you know, particularly Judah, hey, why kill him? Let's make a little money. And they take their brother and they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Then they don't know quite what to do. And you know, kids are like this. We come up with lies to our parents. In fact, I didn't until a few months ago tell my dad, I took your pickup and I ran it in a ditch between Jamestown and Bismarck. And I broke down and some nice mechanic in North Dakota got me going again. I didn't tell him. For 31 years. I was afraid to let my dad know what I'd done in his truck. Well, they don't tell Jacob the full story. What they do is they take Joseph's coat, they slaughter an animal, they smear blood on it, and they take it back to their dad and say, This is what we found. What do you think happened? And Jacob's a man of the woods. He knows what's happened. The wild animals got his son, tore his son to pieces, eaten him, and all that's left is this bloody coat. Everything else has been torn up and eaten. And his brothers think, oh, you know, Dad has, you know, there's 12 or 12 of us, and now we're 11, and, you know, we're kind of like pie. He's not going to have more love for all of us. They watch their father grieve and grieve and grieve and grieve, and he can't be comforted. Joseph, and I imagine there's some of you that are going to read this and empathize with it, because... We want to have a nice, clean story, but it's a complicated one. Joseph goes down to Egypt. He's a slave. He's sold to a man named Potiphar. And he spends a number of years as a slave in Potiphar's house, but God's here. And God gives Joseph success, and everything that he touches in Potiphar's house leads to success. And then Potiphar's a smart man. He goes, I've got this successful slave. And he just starts giving him all of his authority. And Potiphar doesn't think about anything, and he's the captain of the guard, so he's got a lot of responsibility. And he just goes, you know what? 
I'm not going to think about the household. He gives it all to Joseph. Okay. And Joseph is a young, handsome, attractive, probably muscular young man, a bit exotic. And Potiphar's wife is neglected, and she starts trying to seduce Joseph, and he refuses time after time after time. And he says, how can I do this awful thing to my master? He's giving me everything. And eventually she traps him in a way, and then her cloth falls off, and then she realizes the, this embarrassing situation she's in. Instead of coming clean, she plots to accuse Joseph of trying to rape her. And she talks to Potiphar and says, this Hebrew that you brought to me, and she plays to ethnic prejudice. And Joseph has done nothing wrong Nothing that deserved being slowed into slavery by his own brothers, and nothing that deserved to be a slave, and nothing to have this false accusation, feels the wrath of the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and he's thrown into prison. In prison, the story starts to repeat, though. Everything that he touches succeeds. Whatever good is in front of him, he does. Anything that needs sound judgment, he uses. And before you know it, everything in this prison is going well. And the prison captain starts to entrust everything he could possibly entrust to Joseph, to Joseph, but he's in prison. While he's there, there are two men who have offended Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his cupbearer and his baker. And they have some dreams that no one can interpret. And this is a season in history, in fact, I still have these things where sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I've had some dream and it's upset me and I'm trying to get my head together and I wake Jana up and sometimes my wife has even told me, don't tell me about your dreams, I don't want to think about them. <laughs> yeah, these are these type of dreams. Troubled men. Joseph says something to the effect, let me listen to it. I believe my God can give an answer. He doesn't have much confidence in himself, but he has great confidence in what God can do through him. The cupbearer, who would be like the gentleman who drinks, tastes the food of the king to make sure it's not poison, the guy who every time the king is eating puts his life on the line, says, I had a dream where I was lifting my, the cup up to the Pharaoh again, and Joseph says, in three days you're going to be lifted. Pharaoh will forgive you, and you'll go back to his household. The baker is here, so like, oh, this is a pretty good interpretation. Let me put mine in. I had a dream, too. And Joseph says, well, your story isn't going to end very well. Three days, you're going to be killed. And he has. Now, as this is happening, the cupbearer is going to Pharaoh. Joseph says these words, remember me. Hoping that he's finally going to get a, a voice at the top. Some friend that can open doors for him. The season of back and forth and slavery is going to end. The word of God tells us it's two years and he's forgotten. And frankly, how many times have we been, had an act of kindness given to us and we forget about it? I'm still thinking I need to go back and say thank you to the old man and steal who helped me out. I was just a dumb kid. Two years later, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is having trouble in dreams. 
He has a dream of six sickly cows that are eaten by healthy ones, that are seven sickly cows and seven scorched heads of wheat that are eaten by seven healthy heads of grain. And he goes to the magicians and the wise men of Egypt asking for help, and no one can figure out what this is about. And the cupbearer's conscience troubles, and he remembers, I forgot the man in prison two years ago. And he has to go to Pharaoh and say, well, I think I know a guy in Chicago, the phrase, I got a guy. I got a guy in prison. Somebody I know. Two years ago, he gave a good interpretation. I think you ought to give him a call, Pharaoh. Joseph is called. He's shaved. He's cleaned up. He looks presentable. And he goes and hears Pharaoh's dreams. And he tells him pretty clearly. I can't give you interpretation, but my God, the God of my fathers, can. And even as I'm going to say this, as we tell Joseph's story, if we're honest, we're going to notice there's some things he does that are foolish, youthful things. Having to speak for God when maybe there was a time to be quiet, stirring up your brother's wrath, getting your father mad at you. But if they're in this season in prison, the pride of this young man is broken down while his confidence in God continues to increase. And he keeps speaking. God can do this. He interprets Pharaoh's dream and says, God has shown this is what's going to happen. We're going to have seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And he says, what you need to do, Pharaoh, and I'm thinking, you know, I wouldn't be this bold. I, I might be willing to interpret. I'm not so often willing to say, okay, very powerful man, let me tell you what you should do. But this is the thing about Joseph. I think he's learned, okay, when do I speak and when do I not? In prison? He says, this is what you need to do. You need to find a wise man to go, help you govern. You need to take 20% of all the crops from the next seven years and you need to save it. And you'll save our nation. I think when Joseph said this, he was aware enough of his own failings that he knew this was what needed to happen, but he was really hoping Pharaoh would not ask him to do it. I bet he was just hoping to find a way to go home. That's just my guess. Pharaoh looks at him, agrees to it, and says, Joseph, you're the man. Joseph now arrives. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, and the text will tell us he's 30 years old. You do the math. His brother sold him into slavery at 17. He's 30. This is 13 Some of us in a group this big, I'm pretty confident have had somebody do something awful to you. And you're trying to forgive it. But the consequences keep coming up over and over and over. And this is Joseph. It was 13 years before he finally busts out of this destructive cycle. He marries an influential woman. And he has two sons. His first one's name Manasseh which means God has made me forget my hardship in my father's house. These are people that give names with significance. Thirteen years later, wealthy, influential man, and he names his son God has made me forget. He has a second son, Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
quite a name for your two sons. This is how he defines himself, how he defines his family. Seven years pass, plenty. Joseph's administrating, saving 20%. The storehouses in Egypt are getting bigger. The famine comes, and it lasts, at this point, two years. And the famine has reached from Egypt all the way up into Canaan. And Joseph's family is stuck. Jacob, the patriarch, hears the rumor, there is grain in Egypt. And he sends his ten sons that he doesn't love as much as the last one, Benjamin, down to Egypt. Go find grain for us. Find something so we can survive. As his brothers come, Joseph must be administrating some of the sales. And he sees these ten men walk in. And he hears them speaking Hebrew. And you know, if, if you are someone who has a little bit of linguistic skill, sometimes you hide what languages you hear. Sometimes you're overt with it, and sometimes you hide it. Sometimes you use it to try to get somebody to say something in a language that you will here, but you don't want them to know that you're understanding everything that's being said. I think Joseph figures this one out. These are my brothers. He calls them in, and they're just trying to negotiate for grain, and he accuses them of being spies. And there had been a war with the Hittites, north, a similar people. He plays games with them, he tests them, and in my mind, you know, this is me interpreting it, I think Joseph is wrestling with, what do I do with my brothers? And there's a portion of them that's really angry, and a portion of them that's going to test them, and going to try them, and they're going to even maybe have a hand of punishment to inflict upon them. And eventually what he decides to do is he's heard, okay, my father is alive, and Benjamin is alive, and I want them to come down here, and he knows the way his father will reason. And knows, I want to see what's real. So he decides, I'm going to take Simeon, and I'm going to throw Simeon in jail. He's going to put one of his brothers in jail. And then let him go back. And he's wrestling, in my mind, he's wrestling with how does he deal with his brothers. And on one hand is graciousness, and on the other hand is judgment. And he gives all the silver, all the coins, into the bag. So as his brothers are going back, and they open up their bags, looking at the grain, uh-oh, we've got all the money. It looks like we stole things. And his brothers are racked by fear. In fact, Joseph has heard them speaking in Hebrew, talking about, we're finally getting the punishment we deserve for what we did to our brother Joseph. 22 years later, it's eaten in all 10 other consciences. They return to Jacob. And there's going to come a season where they run out of this grain. They're going to have to go back to Egypt. And Jacob blames the boys as they're saying, we need to come down with Benjamin, he blames his ten sons. Well, I would have Joseph if it wasn't for you. I'm not giving you Benjamin. Finally, they just, food runs out, they're hungry, and I'm imagining Jacob's listening to his grandchildren cry for, for food. And frankly, as a grandfather, my granddaughter can get by with things my kids never could. <laughs> You know that? Get them crying, and you know, the answer is yes. Jacob decides I'm going to send Benjamin down, but he 
talks harshly to his sons. And Judah, who's the one who led in negotiating, led in plotting to make a profit off of the sale of his brother Joseph, makes a covenant with his dad. My life with his boys. You can do anything. I am fully responsible. He's making the deal now. They get down to Egypt, and they're pulled into Joseph's house. Uh, and the brothers, now 11 of them, they're going, what's going on here? And they're even wondering, are we going to get overpowered here? Are we going to end up being Egyptian slaves? What's going on? We're being brought into a place where we shouldn't be. And Joseph is giving them this, this mixture of messages. He brings out Simeon, so they get reunited with Simeon, and he shows a, a great feast to them. And then he puts five times as much food in front of Benjamin, and he has them all seated by the birth order. And his brothers are just getting really messed up by this. It's like there's something he knows. Does this guy know about us? And they keep talking to themselves about, I think we're being punished for what we did to Joseph. And Joseph several times has to remove himself because he has to wail out in, in grief. And he can't let anybody know what's being torn up inside him. Negotiation happens. The grain's paid for. And Joseph again has the money put in the sacks and then has his personal cup put in Benjamin's sack. And the brothers go. They get to open up the sacks and they see what's there. And then the guards come and confront him and they bring the brothers back and they don't know that Benjamin has the cup. And they actually say, whoever one of us stole this cup should die. The brothers wish for the death of one of their own brothers, thinking it's, it's not us. And if it is, you know, we still got 11 brothers. Or 10, I guess. I'm sorry, I got the math wrong. But they found some vengeance. Joseph presses them for a while. And if you can imagine this, this is one that I still like. I read the story, I try to talk about it. I, I can see this in my mind. I can feel the emotion of it. The brothers are hearing this tremendous guilt. And you know, the, this easy, as you read the story, probably the easiest thing to see is the 13 years of suffering of Joseph. But as I've gotten older, I think the ones that suffered the worst were those 10 brothers. Because for at this point, 22 years, they had to maintain a lie. And they had to watch their father leave. 22 years of that, they had suffered worse. As Joseph is playing with his brothers, and he's going to throw Simeon or Benjamin in jail, different translations will say it a little bit differently, but the way I prefer to hear it is Judah says, my life for the boys, keep me. Don't let my father suffer like this anymore. You can have me. You can do anything you want with me. Send Benjamin back to my dad. Don't let my dad grieve. Don't let him go down to death after he'd lost his two favorites. Joseph can't contain himself anymore. He sends his brothers 
where he sends all the Egyptian servants out. And then he says these words, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. I can't imagine this sense of fear becoming magnified, all of a sudden realizing this man who's playing with you and has made your life feel like a living hell is now has all of the power in the world. And here you are at his feet begging for food. I am Joseph. But while his brothers are trembling in fear, and I think repentance, he speaks to them and says, this was not you sending me here. This was God. That it was God's intention to use our family to rescue the world in the way he did it was sending me to Egypt through this path. Don't be angry with yourselves. You're forgiven. And he tells them to go get my father. And there's this joyous reunion. Now, this is the part of the story that as we tell little kids, we're all really happy about. And every one of us if we've lived long enough to have a disagreement within our family or have had a bad business deal or had something go wrong at school or employment, we can all read this and we can find something in our life which we identify with. Someone in it that we identify with. I'm going to get to Genesis 50 and I'm going to read this text. This is the one we'll go into verse by verse for just a bit. I'm reading from Holman's, verse 50, verse 15, and I have my focus. I have to move my thing around a little bit. Yeah. If you send your kids to Jan and I and they're crying, they'll probably say yes. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us all for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph before he died. Your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Then his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. Any comfort that was spoken of me tonight. I'm doing the math. It mentions that Jacob or Israel is 130 when he goes down. And mentions he dies at 147. So this is, if I'm doing the math right, this is 17 years later. So we had 22 years to get to betrayal, to reconciliation. 17 years where you think reconciliation has happened. And the 10 brothers are still trembling in fear. They're thinking Joseph's being kind because he's afraid of dad. And once dad's gone, we're going to catch him. And they even again tell a lie. Let's go tell Joseph this was the instruction. When it comes to Joseph, Word of God says he wept 
that his brothers, after 17 years, have yet to conceptualize they are forgiven. And this is God's purpose. If you're wrestling today with something painful, I want you to know God will use it for his purpose. I'm going to make a couple of points and then I'm going to come circle back to the original story. I was sitting here thinking about 31 years ago. My dad told me, hey Twinkle, I'll give you $100 if you can get that bucket to Williston in a day. Here's enough money to get fuel, food, hotel room. Tomorrow, you drive today, tomorrow I want you to deliver that bucket. I was so afraid of my dad that I ran into a snowstorm and I should have stopped and got a hotel, but I kept driving because I was afraid of my dad. And then I was so afraid of my dad that I didn't tell him that I drove the truck into a ditch and that the truck overheated and I was too stupid to figure out how to fix it. I could hear him say, dumb kid, I hated when he would say that. But I got that bucket to Williston. I got in just as it was getting dark. And I woke up before it was daylight and drove our pickup to the job site. And I remember a group of men who were really strong, they were bigger than me, grabbing a 400 pound bucket out of our truck and throwing it on the back out and going to work. And I remembered as I was sitting here, my dad could be an ordinary individual, but he loved people deeply. He's still alive, he's still ordinary, he's still very active. But if you ever wanted to see my dad get really mad, it was when he saw people that he cared about not being treated in a just way. And I realized that I was sitting here this morning, the reason my dad wanted me to get that bucket the next day to Williston was he knew the guys that were working there. And they needed a bucket that would cut through the frost. They were working in the winter in Williston. And if I didn't get it there, they were stuck away from their families for another day or two. And he didn't want them to be like that. I was thinking my dad was doing that out of fear, and he was encouraging me to hurry because he loved the guys who were in that crew. You may be a Joseph. You may have been betrayed. But I want you to know that God's grace triumphs over your betrayal, of those who have betrayed you. You may be a Jacob. And you're irritated at your kids, but your kids have picked up all of those habits from you. And you're wondering, how do I straighten this thing out? And God sovereignly says, it's true. He will try it. You may be a Reuben, where in your youthful rebellion, you did something awful and shameful. And you're trying to straighten it out by deception and trickery, and God says, trust my sovereign grace. You may be Judah, who spent your whole life negotiating and playing games, and finally you're at the point where you realize I've got to trade my life, my life, for what is God's intention, and His sovereign grace will take care of you. Let me say a prayer to bless all of you. Father God, I ask your kindness to be with these people. I'm thankful to your little kids. 
I ask your kindness to be with these children. May their lives be full of your goodness and joy. May they have many good memories. May those who have parents shepherd them with them. May you bring prosperity in the hands of labor. May you bless this church. May its dreams become our future reality. May you graciously help the leadership and guide them and forgive them for their failings and teach them the ways of your wisdom, for you are better than all of you could have. It's in your son's name we pray.